Support has been provided by independent educational grants from Astellas, AstraZeneca, Bristol-Myers Squibb, Janssen Biotech Incorporated, administered by Janssen Scientific Affairs, LLC, Merck, Pfizer Incorporated, Sanofi Genzyme, and Eurogen Pharma Incorporated. Hi, this is Vic Nitti, Chair of the AUA Office of Education, and I'd like to welcome you all to another Office of Education podcast. This one in the AUA Expert Exchange podcast series on discussions about managing GU cancer. Specifically today, we're going to talk about advanced prostate cancer and the newest AUA Astro SUO guideline. It is my pleasure to introduce my co-host, Dr. Kelvin Moses. Dr. Moses is Associate Professor of Urology at Vanderbilt University Medical Center. He serves as the Urologic Oncology Fellowship Director as well as the director of the Comprehensive Prostate Cancer Clinic. He completed his MD and PhD at Baylor College of Medicine, followed by urologic training at Emory University, and then fellowship in urologic oncology at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. His practice focuses on advanced prostate cancer, including serving as the principal investigator on several clinical trials, as well as surgical management of, adva of advanced renal, penile, and testicular cancer. Uh, Kelvin's research is focused on addressing health disparities in urologic cancers, determining the role of health literacy in patient interactions with, health, with the healthcare system, and the optimal care for patients with metastatic and or castrate-resistant prostate cancer. So I can't think of a better person to be on this podcast with me. Kelvin, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, and thanks for having me. Uh, I just want to go over a couple of learning objectives before we start. Uh, one is going to be to review the evidence and outcomes on the treatment of M1 hormone-sensitive prostate cancer, M0 castrate, uh, castration-resistant prostate cancer, and M1, and M1 castrate-resistant prostate cancer, as outlined in the newly updated AUA Advanced Metastatic and CRPC Guidelines. Second learning objective is to improve diagnostic and decision-making processes by illustrating the application of these guidelines in urologic practice. So Kelvin, I thought we might start with um, what is new in M1 hormone-sensitive prostate cancer. Great. Yeah, there's been several trials that have come out just in the last couple of years in the metastatic hormone sensitive space. Uh, just briefly as a background, a few years ago, two trials, the charted trial, uh, which looked at docetaxel with AD, uh, came out and uh, two trials with similar uh, outcomes looking at abiraterone with prednisone, both found a survival benefit to early treatment of men with metastatic hormone-sensitive prostate cancer. And again, these were combinations of either docetaxel with androgen deprivation or abiraterone. More recently, we've had the Enzymet trial, which was based primarily in Australia and uh, New Zealand. And in this trial, uh, looking at enzalutamide, um, 
these patients, again, with uh, metastatic hormone sensitive disease uh, were randomized to enzalutamide and uh, showed a overall survival at three years of 80% versus 72% in the standard care group. Uh, and these, these patients got bicalutamide. And so they had significantly longer progression-free and overall survival uh, compared to bicalutamide. And then the other important trial that came out was the TITAN trial. And in this, in this study, this was apalutamide versus placebo in men with metastatic hormone sensitive disease. And again, what significant improvement in overall survival and radiographic progression free survival among men who received apalutamide uh, versus placebo. And specifically, uh, as far as um, uh, volume of disease, uh, this was something that was pointed out in the earlier trials charted in latitude. And the majority of these men had high volume disease in the Titan trial. And so what it shows is that men who are presenting with, with advanced disease, de novo uh, metastatic disease, hormone sensitive, have several options for treatment. And really you have to look in the details as far as side effects and long-term adverse events in order to determine what's best for patients. How about in the non-metastatic castration resistant prostate cancer group? So again, several uh, very exciting studies have uh, come out in this group. So these are the patients who have been on androgen deprivation, uh, usually for uh, long-term biochemical recurrent disease and have now developed castrate resistance. So what's important before I talk about the drugs, we have to confirm that they are non-metastatic. And conventional radiographic studies include a CT or MRI to determine nodal or visceral involvement and a bone scan uh, to determine bony involvement. Uh, novel PET-CT imaging is available uh, that, that clinicians can use. Uh, additionally, you need to confirm that they are truly castrate, so testosterone of less than 50. And once you confirm that they're M0, again, there are several options uh, for patients. Uh, for the longest time, uh, for several years now, we've had the PROSPER trial, uh, that showed that enzalutamide had a significant improvement in what's called metastasis-free survival. And all these trials use MFS as their primary endpoint. It's, it's sort of a combined endpoint uh, looking at either progression, radiographic progression, or death. The newer trials, uh, the first one is Aramis trial looking at darolutamide. And the patients who received darolutamide versus placebo had an improvement in median metastasis-free survival from 18.4 months with placebo to 40.4 months with darolutamide. And uh, importantly, these patients tolerated medication very well. In fact, the adverse event between the treatment group darolutamide was 8.9% and was 8.7 in the uh, placebo group. The other important trial in this space is the Spartan trial. And uh, this was looking at apalutamide and again, metastasis-free survival. 
And similarly, they found an improvement in median metastasis-free survival of 16.2 months up to 40.5 months in the apalutamide group. There were some important adverse events in, in, the, in this trial, uh, particularly rash, uh, which uh, we see in patients not immediately, but at approximately 80 days after initiation of treatment. Additionally, hypothyroidism and fracture uh, were noted at higher percentages, but again, these are, are well-tolerated medications. So in this space now, there are three medications, enzalutamide, apalutamide, and darolutamide that improve metastasis-free survival. Okay, now let's talk about an area that we're a little bit more familiar um, with treating advanced prostate cancer, and that is the M1 castration-resistant prostate cancer group. What's new uh, for these patients? So these patients have several options. And, and as you said, we, we know a good bit more about this uh, beginning really in about 2000. 10 uh, with docetaxel and then Cipulucel-T. Um, again, also uh, abiraterone, enzalutamide are all available for these patients. The new uh, findings are really in the uh, uh, area of uh, checkpoint inhibitors and PARP inhibitors. And uh, both of these medications are based on the fact that these patients with advanced cancer have deleterious DNA damage repair mutations. And then specifically, we found that men with specific mutations in such, uh, genes such as BRCA1 and 2, ATM, uh, Fanconi anemia gene, uh, may actually have additional response to these medications. So more recently, uh, we have um, the publication of a phase two trial of Olaparib, one of the PARP inhibitors. Uh, and uh, what they found in a group of uh, 49 patients who were highly pretreated, they had had, most of them had had four or more prior lines of therapy. And uh, of those patients, 16 had an, uh, a noticeable response, either in reduction of PSA, instability or improvement of imaging or a reduction in the number of circulating tumor cells. And of those 16 patients, 88% had uh, genetic changes such as BRCA2 loss or aberrations in the ATM gene. And so with this phase two data, the, the uh, guidelines have actually updated and in patients who have had next level genomic uh, sequencing, who have the appropriate genetic mutations, Olaparib is, uh, a, uh, is an option uh, for patients. Uh, additionally, there are new data uh, with patients who have mismatch repair deficiency or MSI high, microsatellite instability high castrate-resistant prostate cancer. They're actually available uh, to have the checkpoint inhibitor Pembrolizumab, and again, there's some uh, early phase one and phase two data for these patients. So now, in addition to all the other medications that are based either on immuno or hormone therapy, we now have PARP inhibition or checkpoint inhibitors available for patients with specific genetic mutations. Well, um, 
Let's talk, <clears throat> let's talk a little bit about um, palliative care and bone health. These are two um, really important issues in our patients with advanced prostate cancer. Um, and what are some of the key points in handling bone health and in palliative care? Yeah, th this is really important. And this goes to um, our job as trying to maintain quality of life in these patients with advanced cancer. And so I'll start with bone health. At baseline, all patients who are on androgen deprivation therapy should be taking vitamin D and calcium as long as there's no contraindication. One thing that should be emphasized to patients too is to perform resistance exercise. In, in performing resistance exercise, you actually cause bone remodeling and bone strengthening. And these patients are uh, more resistant to the osteoporotic effects of androgen deprivation. Additionally, patients should be getting a DEXA scan every other year and you can calculate the FRAC score. There's an online calculation that you can use to determine the risk of either major osteoporotic fracture or hip fracture. And if they're above a certain percentage, then you should consider some of the bone protecting agents such as bisphosphonates or denosumab. Now, one caveat I will bring up is that um, the, one of the more devastating side effects of these medications can be osteonecrosis of the jaw, uh, which I've, I've seen in patients and, and is truly painful. And so any patients who have poor dentition, um, you want to be very judicious about using the medication and certainly have an evaluation with a dentist. Now, as far as palliative care, this is something that uh, we as physicians should be more cognizant of the role that palliative care can play and not even just for end of life. Palliative care can help us with uh, dealing with side effects, pain, hot flashes, um, and, and, and really can give guidance as far as goals of care uh, for patients. But for patients who are uh, elderly, you know, with competing comorbidity, have progressed through multiple lines of therapy and, and now have a poor performance status, we should really consider engaging our palliative care colleagues in order to maintain as much quality of life as possible uh, so that we're not uh, essentially <laughs> beating a dead horse, you know, for lack of a better phrase. Uh, but really, you know, it also helps with the family as well because uh, spouses, caregivers, children uh, are really going through this with their, fam with their loved one. And palliative care, again, can help with uh, getting the family together on the same page as far as goals of care and maintenance of quality of life. Kelvin, as somebody who treats a lot of patients with advanced prostate cancer, when it comes to bone health, is that something that you yourself manage or is that something that you usually refer out? So in our clinic, we, we are fortunate to have a great team. I have a nurse practitioner that works with me. Uh, we have a, uh, have a clinical nurse um, coordinator. Uh, we also have uh, social work and nurse navigators that work with us. So we do manage it in our clinic. Um, and in particular, uh, uh, even if patients need bisphosphonates or denosumab, we do administer that. I would say for the urologists in the community, if you do not have 
this type of multidisciplinary approach within your clinic, then it's certainly appropriate to refer patients uh, either to endocrinologists or even their primary care physician uh, to help with um, the maintenance of bone health. But uh, for the, the patients who can come to a, a multidisciplinary specialty clinic, either neurology or medical oncology, uh, we're certainly able to provide these therapies for patients. So there, it, a lot has, I think, changed and been updated with the new guidelines. And I just want to, it's a lot to remember. And I just want to uh, remind our audience that uh, access to this information is really quite easy, um, either through the AUA website, one can access the guidelines or through the guidelines app. So um, with all these updates, I just think it, it's important for us, uh, for those of us who are treating uh, patients with advanced prostate cancer um, that were aware of that. Kelvin, if you sort of had to summarize for our audience the key changes or the key updates in the new guidelines, what would those be? So some of the key points, again, uh, we uh, allow for uh, novel PET imaging uh, to determine uh, metastatic disease. Um, as far as medications, again, several new therapies, but they, they fall under the, the umbrellas of either, excuse me, second line uh, anti-androgen oral therapies or uh, chemotherapy where appropriate. Um, the, another very important point is that these patients should be offered germline and somatic tumor genetic testing. And again, the reason for that is we can determine uh, patients' uh, eligibility or, or, uh, to the uh, specific treatments such as PARP inhibitors or checkpoint inhibitors. Um, and then again, emphasizing the role of palliative care in the appropriate patients. And I think those are really the biggest changes. There, there's so many trials that are coming fast and furious, combinations of therapies. Um, newer iterations of known therapies, but really advanced imaging, uh, knowledge of the newer therapies and what space they belong and genetic uh, sort of germline or somatic genetic testing uh, are really sort of the big uh, changes that patient, or sorry, uh, clinicians should be aware of. Before we close, is there anything else that you would like to say to our audience um, regarding the, uh, the new guidelines or for that matter, anything related to the diagnosis and management of advanced prostate cancer? Absolutely. I think the two important things is to make sure that you've confirmed what space your patient belongs. Uh, there is some overlap of some of the medications, but there, there really are specific indications for each of the therapies that we've discussed. The other is to really emphasize clinical trials. The, there are trials within each space that patients are eligible for. And with each iteration of the trials, we're getting better survival, better metastasis-free survival, and really should consider having these patients uh, being seen in a multidisciplinary fashion to determine uh, if they are eligible for clinical trials. And lastly, I would advocate for diversification of the patient populations within these trials. 
Uh, if you uh, look at the demographics, there's very few African-American patients, very few Hispanic patients. Uh, and, and really in, in a population such as African-American men who have some of the worst outcomes from prostate cancer, we should really focus on that population in order to improve survival for an otherwise high-risk uh, group. So again, just uh, appropriate definition of our patients and advocation for clinical trial involvement. You know, I got, I have one final question for you. And, you know, we've talked about the guideline and it is a, you know, it, it's a, it, it's a guideline that's supported by uh, several different organizations. So I wondered if you can just tell our audience sort of how, how the guideline was created. So the initial guideline, I believe came out in 2012. And it, it, I, the, the genesis is really how we went from essentially no options or, or very few options uh, to you know, several within just a few year period. Um, and again, part of the guideline is that we want to be giving appropriate therapy to the appropriate patient. So I'll tell you the, event, uh, you know, the example of Cipulus LT. It's actually a, a very specific indication, metastatic castration-resistant prostate cancer, minimally symptomatic or asymptomatic. And so you, know, you, want to, you want to give patients the appropriate therapy at the appropriate time. If someone is you know, tremendously symptomatic or rapidly progressive disease, then they shouldn't be on Cipulus LT or rapidly progressive disease and terrible diabetes. They should not be getting abiraterone. So really the, the entire purpose of the guideline is to make sure that patients are receiving the appropriate care for the appropriate diagnosis. All righty, well, Calvin, I wanna uh, thank you uh, so much for uh, this uh, really nice summary of where we are with uh, advanced prostate cancer uh, treatment um, and diagnosis and treatment, and certainly things have changed. And I suspect that when this podcast uh, is repeated in the next year or two, that we'll have uh, lots uh, more changes as this is really a rapidly evolving field where there's a lot of interest and as you noted, uh, a lot of clinical trials. Um, so again, thank you so much for uh, participating with us today. Absolutely, thanks for having me. Uh, I would also like to thank our audience uh, for listening. And as always, uh, if you would like more information, please visit us at auanet.org university. Thank you.